0: The reading this morning comes from Psalm 84, and in your blue Bibles, that's on page 588, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Bakar. They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord o- God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob, look on our shield, O God, look with favour on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord bestows favour and honour, no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you.
1: Terrific. Well, um, thank you for reading, Nathan, and thank you for your warm welcome before. It is a great um, its a great thrill, actually, to be here. As I said, I've been uh, one of the Assistant Ministers at Trinity City for the last 14 years, and to watch as we've planted churches from Trinity City, and then particularly to see them plant again, and to be able to be here with you on a Sunday uh, is something that I just rejoice in. Um, it is wonderful looking out here and actually seeing lots of people who I recognise from different p- parts in the past, but equally many more who I don't, uh, which uh, I think is just a wonderful testimony to how God is using this particular community in this part of his world uh, to reach out with the good news of the gospel. Uh, As uh, Mike said, I'm here for the next three weeks. Uh, We're looking at Psalms 84, 85 and 86, uh, so just straight through if you'd like to read ahead at any point. Can I please encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you? I'm going to spend most of our time looking at The passage uh, that was uh, read for us. It'll pop up on screen at different points, but actually having a Bible in front of you, you'll find helpful. Uh, Likewise, the inside cover of the leaflet has an outline of what I'm going to talk about. Can you please make sure you have that in front of you as well, because that will help make sense uh, of this particular talk. Uh, And I think with those introductions done, let me pray and uh, we will sit under God's word for this next little while. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word has been written for us and for our salvation. Uh, We ask that you might speak to us this day by your spirit. Uh, Take these words and imprint them deep on our hearts and show us how we might live lives that bring honour and glory to the Lord Jesus, who is our Saviour. Amen. Uh, Well, I've headed this talk, The God Who Blesses, and where I want to start is with the observation that a great song... Like the psalms, a great song makes you feel something special, uh, not only for how they sound, but for what they say. A great song makes you feel something special, not only for how they sound, but particularly for what they say. Uh, which raises the question then: What makes Psalm eighty-four a song? We're told there at the introduction, a song of the sons of Korah. Uh, what makes it so magnificent? What I want to suggest today is that what makes Psalm 84 so wonderful is because of how it describes our great God and what he is like. At the top of your handout, uh, you'll see there in my outline, I've said the key to the Psalms uh, is to remember that the Psalms first and foremost tell us what God is like. They're not first and foremost a prescription for what we should do. First and foremost, the Psalms tell us what God is like. They're not about what we ought to do. I have a couple of reasons for saying that. The first is that it enables us to avoid moralism, that is, trying to repeat the Psalms when quite obviously we can't. This is a Psalm of the Sons of Korah. It's all about them going to the temple in Jerusalem. So if you think you need to repeat Psalm 84, well, you'll be off buying tickets after this, booking flights. That's clearly not the point of how we're meant to read it. So instead... What the Psalms do is they paint a picture of what God is like. They don't describe our actions first and foremost. And part of the reason why that's so important for us as Christians is because as those who live after the coming of the Lord Jesus, we see in Jesus what God in his fullest revelation is like. We see God in all his glory. And so for that reason, the way in which I've structured each of the talks for the next three weeks is exactly the same. Point one, what Psalm 84 says about God. Point two, how Psalm 84 points us to Jesus. And then point three, what Psalm 84 might have to say to us today. Okay. So hopefully that will help you follow along and see how we're going to move from the sons of Korah and their great song uh, to us today. Firstly, what does Psalm 84 say about God? Well, uh, the psalm is set in Old Testament Israel, hundreds of years before Christ. We're not told the exact date, but Solomon's temple in Jerusalem appears to be in operation. So in all likelihood, that means it's somewhere between 500 and 1,000 years before Jesus. And the song that's written here in Psalm 84 uh, can be broken down into three even, now I'd say verses, but we're going to talk about verses, so let's call them stanzas three even stanzas, each of which uses a key word that gives you a clue as to the key to the psalm. That word is blessed, blessed. So you see it there in verse four. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. You see it in verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in the Lord. Uh, And verse uh, 12, Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Three even stanzas, verses one through four, five through eight, nine through twelve, each of them talks about blessing, because each of them describe what it's like to be in a relationship with God. And therefore, each of them tell us something about what God is like. Let me say something about each of those three stanzas. You can see the heading there on your handout. Uh, Firstly, how good it would be to be with God. How good it would be to be with God. Verses 1 through 4. Let me read this again. Verses 1 through 4. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. The first stanza vividly describes the songwriter's great desire. My soul yearns even faints with longing to be with God. To be in his courts, in his house, which at the time meant to be in his temple. So why is it that the sons of Korah long to be in God's temple? Well, Not because the temple was splendid and magnificent, although it was. You'd know that Solomon's temple was one of the ancient wonders of the world. And it was majestic in every way. But that's not why the sons of Korah want to be in the temple. They want to be there because they want to be as close as possible to God himself. And you see a hint of that there in verse 3. Verse 3, it talks about the altar, a place near the altar... As the Israelites understood, the altar was the place where God dwelt amongst his people. Quite literally, when he came down, that would be the place where he would be. And so if you got to be near the altar, you would be near God. It would be the ultimate sign of belonging, of being accepted, of intimacy. Because you cannot get any closer to God than the altar, which is where he was said to dwell amongst his people. And the illustration that's there in verse 3 is that if the most insignificant of birds, a sparrow, a swallow, can get to the altar, can come into God's presence, if even they can get there, so can we. No wonder then that the sons of Korah will say how they long to be there. And if they were allowed to stay there, if they were allowed to dwell there where God was, well, you'd call them blessed. And they would be ever praising God. So firstly, how good it would be to be with God. Secondly, there is a great excitement and anticipation of being with God, and it's infectious and contagious. So come to the second stanza, verses 5 through 8. Let me read this part of the song again. Verses 5 through 8. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Uh, It's a little surprise then that the second stanza in the song paints a picture of those making their way to God's house, to the place where God is. And the picture is of, verse 5, pilgrims, pilgrims, pilgrims who are almost giddy and breathless with excitement and anticipation that soon they're going to get to the temple where God is and they will get to be with God. So we're told in verse 7, as they draw nearer, they go from strength to strength. And their excitement, their eagerness, it's infectious. It can, it's contagious. It rubs off on everybody else. So if you look at verse 6, uh, there's an image there of a dry and barren place. Uh, it's called the Valley of Bacca. Uh, we don't know what the Valley of Bacca is, but it doesn't sound particularly hospitable, does it? You know, the Valley of Bacca. Uh, maybe think Death Valley, right? It doesn't sound particularly nice. But the picture in verse 6 is as they pass through the valley of Baca, all of a sudden it's like it's a place of springs where autumn rains cover it with pools. It's a picture of a dry desert that's suddenly been drenched in cool, soaking rains and how what goes from one moment being so inhospitable to all of a sudden being a place of great delight. Uh, I've never had the privilege of going to Lake Eyre um, but I know some of you have, or if nothing else, you've seen the pictures most of the year round, right? Complete barren desert. And then every now and then, when the rains come through, it's transformed just like that, full of flora and fauna. It's a completely different place. And the image here in verse 6 is of God's blessing, which spills over to others. As these pilgrims make their way to God, everyone else sees them, and they too start to feel differently, as they get closer, everyone feels better. It's like when uh, we in South Australia say to someone who's come to visit from interstate, you know, perhaps at the end of another long, miserable winter here, and we say to them, oh, you've brought the sunshine with you, haven't you? That's the picture here, I think, of how those who are on their way, they're a blessing to others around them as well. How good it would be to be with God. The excitement and anticipation of being with God is infectious and contagious. So thirdly and finally, nothing matters more, nothing matters more than getting to be with God. Verses 9 through 12, this is the last part of the psalm. Let me read out this last stanza for us. Verse 9. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favour on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Uh, The first stanza was about uh, the joy and delight of being with God. The second stanza describes the experience of the pilgrims on their way to meet God. The third stanza fast forwards to the arrival of the pilgrims. They've gotten there. They're now outside the entrance to God's house. They're waiting to be admitted. It's that picture of almost as if they're banging on the door. God, let us in. We've made it. And out front of them, verse 9 look on our shield, O God, look with favour on your anointed one. Uh, The shield or the anointed one is just a metaphor for the king. The king is the anointed one, he is their shield. The sense is, as they stand outside God's temple, if God allows their king inside, he'll let us in as well. Of course, the question becomes for us, who is this king? Who is the anointed one that Psalm 84 is referring to? Well, we'll get there in a moment, but first, the justifiably famous verse 10, which was the focus of that outstanding kids' talk, apart from the fact that you're all thinking about watermelon and tacos. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. There are two powerful images here that describe how nothing matters more than being with God. Nothing matters more than being with God. Uh, Two powerful images. One is of one day. One day is a measurement in terms of time. One day here is better than a thousand elsewhere. Being a doorkeeper in the house of my God rather than dwelling in the tents of the wicked, that's an image not of time but of proximity, of nearness, of being right there, right next to God. And so my question for you today is, which of these two images, time or proximity, which is the one that captures your imagination? Uh, For me, it's the image of time, of one day in God's presence being better than a thousand anywhere else. Let me ask you, what's the best day that you've ever had? What's the best day that you've ever had? I'm married, so of course I'll say it was my wedding day. Even though my wife's not here, I'll say it anyway. Uh, my wedding day, and it was a great day, right? Perhaps for you, your best day that you ever had was the birth of a child. Maybe it was a reunion with a long-lost relative. Maybe the best day for you was the day in which you finally won that competition that you had been trying for, for season after season. Maybe the best day for you was the day in which you finally got a job or perhaps left a job. Perhaps the best day was the day in which you finally realised the extent the horror and the totality of your sin. And in the same instant, you grasped the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of God's love for you nevertheless. Whatever your best day, a single day with God, to talk with him, to listen to him, just to hang out with him. That's better than a thousand of any other days, no matter how good they might be. And so no wonder then the sons of Korah, having used these two powerful images, finish with three extravagant descriptions of what God is like, of God's goodness. You see them in verse 11. God is described as a sun and shield, a sun and shield. Now, shield conveys the sense of God being a protector or a defender, whereas the word sun, S-U-N here, it speaks not so much of the protector of life, but also of the giver of life. Because in crude scientific terms, that's what the sun is, is it not? Uh, Secondly, bestows favor and honor. God bestows favour and honour. It is true, our God is just. And we want to see justice done. And it will be done. But even more than the righting of wrongs, what I think we long for is to be honoured and commended and praised and acclaimed and esteemed and by God, no less. Or the third description of God's goodness, no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Now it's important to notice that the word blameless does not mean sinless. If blameless meant sinless, then no one could ever be admitted into God's presence. So instead the word blameless, it means full of integrity or beyond reproach. We come into God's presence not because we have any right to demand it, Even the anointed king needs God to look with favour on him, we are told. We enter because God chooses to bestow favour and honour. For his goodness is abundant and overflowing. No good thing does he withhold. Okay, so in summary, what does Psalm 84 say about God? It says that he is wonderful, that being with him is glorious and magnificent and delightful. And it says that he welcomes us in when we come asking trusting just in his goodness and his mercy. Okay, so that's point one, what Psalm 84 says about God. I'll move much more quickly through points two and three. How then does Psalm 84 point us to Jesus? Uh, Because remember that problem that I described at the start? Uh, We don't just repeat the Psalms. We're not Zionists like the original recipients were. We're not committed to the restoration of Jerusalem with her magnificent temple. So how do we sing it today? What does it mean for us? Well, part of the reason why we know we're not Zionists is because, in fact, actually the rest of the Old Testament makes it clear that God is no longer in his temple. Uh, When the Israelites are sent into exile and the temple is destroyed, actually even before that, God's glory departs. Even if the temple were to be rebuilt today, God would not be there. But remembering, again, the key to the Psalms, what it tells us what God is like, not what we are to do, reminds us that Psalm 84 points us to Jesus, who is the fullest revelation of God. Now, how do you see that? Well, just two ways, Uh, and uh, you'll see a couple of verses come up on the screen for each of these. Firstly, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus has come to us. It's not up to us to go to him. He's actually come to us. And you see that in John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Now, the second way, I think, in which Psalm 84 points us towards Jesus is that Jesus opens the new and living way to be, with his God, to be with God. Jesus shows the new and living way to get to God, not by going to Jerusalem, but actually by coming to him through the blood of Christ. And you'll see this in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22, uh, which again should be printed on the screen. Let me read it out. Therefore, brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews reminds us that what Jesus does is that he opens the new and living way for us to come to God, to the most holy place. How? By the shedding of his own blood. Because in so doing, Jesus solves the problem of the fact that we are not blameless. You see, even if God knows we cannot be sinless, something still has to be done about our sin. In fact, the reference to the altar in Psalm 84 is a reminder that the way in which sin is dealt with is by blood being shed. In the Old Testament system, it was an animal that was sacrificed, but clearly that's insufficient. In the shedding of the Lord Jesus' blood, in the one who is perfect man and and fully God, At last, we see the sacrifice that is made that our sins, which cannot be forgotten or ignored, our sins are atoned for. In the end, if you want to come into God's presence, someone's blood has to be shed. The choice is, it's either yours or it's Christ's. Praise be to God. Hebrews 10, his blood is shed that we might enter in. Uh, one of the privileges that I have is of working with university students. I've been doing it for a number of years and God willing, for, will for many more. Uh, millennials these days think a bit differently from basically the rest of society. Uh, no, that's unfair. Millennials make up a fair proportion of society. But in particular, for millennials, words don't always land. Often it's image that does. And so uh, each week I'll try and give you a little picture to take away that perhaps will help you understand what Psalm 84 is about that you might recall in the week ahead and be thankful. The picture is printed at the bottom of your handout. This is why you have to have a handout in front of you. Uh, The picture there is of a little old-fashioned movie ticket stub which says, admit to. Because the way in which Psalm 84 points us towards Jesus is to remind us that it's like when you stand in a line waiting to get into somewhere. Jesus is the one at the front. He's the one who's admitted in. And when he goes in, he says to the security guys, it's okay. Jeff's with me. It's okay. Mike's with me. It's okay. Sue's with me. What Psalm 84 says about God, how Psalm 84 points us to Jesus, finally, and very briefly, what Psalm 84 says, up, says to us today. Jesus, of course, is the one who takes us into the presence of God, but now Jesus is with God in heaven at his right hand. Nevertheless, he promises that he is still with us by his spirit as we make disciples for him. And so this very famous passage that you know well from Matthew 28 Verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations and so on. Uh, but we often actually, I think, forget to get to the very end of the so-called Great Commission because look how it concludes in verse 20. Surely I'm with you always. to the very end of the age. Uh, Jesus' great promise is that he is with us always. Wherever we go, As we make disciples in his name. And I trust you can see how for us today that is just the most wonderful news we can hear. Jesus is not just present with a handful of first century Palestinian Jews, like he was 2000 years ago. Jesus is with Christians everywhere, across time and across space. Jesus is with us not just when we gather for a worship service on Sunday mornings. Wonderful though that is, but so inadequate. Can you see how much better off we are than the sons of Korah? How what we have is greater than anything they could have anticipated. He is with us always. And that's why, of course, Jesus' most perhaps famous name in the New Testament is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is with us wherever we go. Because if you think about it, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Jesus has been recalled to heaven, you might say. He leaves us to make disciples in his name. So he hasn't left us alone. As we pass on the good news to others, just as it was first given to us, still he is with us. I want to finish by simply asking you, as you think about your week ahead, whatever lies for you in this week to come before we meet again, How might you speak with the same giddy, breathless, almost childlike excitement that we have of wanting to be with God? In fact, of how Jesus is already with us. Yes, only in part, one day in full. How will you speak of that excitement and that conviction that you don't need to go looking for Jesus or searching him out Because he's already right by our side. I ask that because I reckon that that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of conviction, it will be infectious and contagious in a world that is for so many bewildering, uncertain and frightening. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness and mercy you have come to us, and through the Lord Jesus you have opened the way for us to return to you. We look forward to that day, but in the meantime, thank you that Jesus is with us even now by your Spirit. We pray that that certainty might overflow in all that we do, that those around us might long to have what we have as well. Amen.